Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Christopher Blattman, a professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and author of the must-read 2022 book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. The book is now out in paperback, and I'm grateful to speak with him about it, including the factors that influence war and conflict. Christopher, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Let's start with a personal bio, if that's okay. You grew up in Canada and did your undergraduate degree at the University of Waterloo. How did someone who grew up in Canada become so interested in gangs, violence, and war? And how have your Canadian roots shaped the way you think about conflict, development, and global progress? So I think every step has been completely by accident. Um, We never really left the country or traveled when I was a kid. So working abroad was never something that occurred to me going abroad. I mean, I think we went to Disney World if that counts as an international trip, um, when I was maybe, you know, 12. So, so I, and then I, I think as a college student, you know, I was working in business and doing a, a business undergraduate at Waterloo and, and I, I became really interested in issues of poverty and inequality and what you you do about that. And I thought I'd work on it in Canada, but the more I looked at it, the more it seemed like my gosh, there's so many people working on it. And that last mile is so hard. And somewhat ignorantly, I think in the end, this was actually correct. I won't say most of my intuition, any, and most of my intuitions were not correct at that point. But the one that was correct was, was the idea that actually like the, the first mile, maybe not the first mile, but that fourth or fifth mile contributing towards something, you know, abroad, especially in a low income country was, was going to be a lot more straightforward and maybe needs more help. And and that's certainly been confirmed because, you know, then subsequently lots of accidents took me towards working in first in Africa and then on issues of conflict and then issues of gangs. But but everywhere I've worked, I've often been the only person of my, at least of my only, the only person of my social science persuasion and sometimes the only researcher for 100 miles um, working on that issue. And so the idea that you could you know, actually have more impact working abroad, I think, was borne out. Let's turn to the latest book, which uses a mix of economics and political science approaches to understand the factors that lead to war and conflict. You told Russ Roberts in your May 2022 appearance on Econ Talk that, quote, the principal agent problem is really at the center of this book, unquote. Why don't you explain the principal agent problem and its relevance to understanding why we have war? Right. Well, I mean, the first thing I should say is like, it's it's not really a book about my ideas. It was my attempt to take like 50 years of social science on this topic. So economics, political science, with some game theory, but but actually it's a lot of psychology and sociology. 
and give them equal measure. And and the thing is, is we're all really good armchair psychologists. And I think our news and our journalism and our social science has given us lots of psychological reasons why individuals and leaders would be violent. And that's true if you're talking about like a kid on the streets of Chicago who joins a gang or shoots or Vladimir Putin. We we have all of these psychological narratives that might are probably true in, in part. And then we don't always think about the strategic parts of war. So some people said, oh, you've written a book that's about game theory and war. And I'm like, no, no, no. I've, I've written a book about all the drivers of war. It's just you haven't heard the strategic ones before. And, and so you should probably consider both. And one of those is uh, one of the three sort of, I guess, strategic causes of conflict is a really simple one. It says, look, like the people who are deciding on war might not be accountable for all the costs that have to be paid. And so they might actually, you know, place costs and risks on their population that they might not if they were held properly accountable. And that's, that's, that can be true in democracies, but democracies, we've, we've partly, if not mostly solved that problem, which is one reason I think they're relatively, not always, but relatively peaceful. But I think autocracies or also just smaller groups, gangs and rebel groups, places where they're not accountable to the local populace are, are always going to carry us, be more likely to carry us to work because they're going to basically ignore a lot of the costs and they're going to privatize a lot of the benefits. Um, and then there's other reasons. And, and, and that's what, that's what, that's what economists and we'll, we'll call it an agency problem. Like we're the agents, we're the people and our, we, we elect or we, we have a leader who's the principal who makes choices and, or sorry, that's not true. We're the principals. We want our agent, the politician or the rebel leader to do our bidding, but that, that, that person often doesn't because they're unconstrained. And that's like our starting point for, I think, why we go to war so often. The book argues that we have a collective bias towards peace, but there are generally five conditions which can tilt against such a bias. Why don't you unpack them? And how do they interact with one another? Well, I mean, before getting to why we fight, you know, the, I, you know, the book probably, you know, if my editor had let me, I would have called it Why We Don't Fight. But no one wants to buy a book called Why We Don't Fight. But it's kind of a book about why we don't fight. And, and, and maybe that first point in the book is to say, well, actually, you know, you might think we fight all the time and you hear this sort of thing. You hear like, oh, humanity's natural state is war and we're innately aggressive creatures. And, uh, and without denying that there's an awful lot of conflict, because I study it, right? Um, we have, our starting point is that's not true. Uh, that actually 999 times out of a thousand enemies prefer to loathe one another in peace and do so. And so I, I like to point out, for example, you know, the last year, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been on everyone's minds, obviously. But two weeks into the Russian invasion, uh, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan, and nothing happened. Uh, and and most of us, I almost missed the story entirely. It was barely reported. Uh, but peace broke out that day, just as it's broken out most days for the last few decades between India and Pakistan, these nuclear armed powers. Now, if if, if India and Pakistan had started a conflict, at that moment, of course, we'd all write the story about, oh, it was inevitable. And we'd have all these, we'd, the, the causes would be obvious, uh, but they didn't fight. And so we didn't, we didn't write that story and we didn't pay attention to it. So we, we sort of, these, these sort of, sort of moments of quieter compromise slipped from our attention. So that's like the first thing I'd just point to. And that's just true for gangs. That's true for ethnic groups. That's true for religious rivals. That's true for countries. Like it's just too costly. To contemplate and so they they find some other way and and so the book is then saying well actually 
what that means is is war is well, it's not simple, but war is simple in the sense that every explanation for war comes down to one side or the other, either overlooking those costs or being willing to pay them. And that's basically it. And then every story you've ever heard about war that I think is correct is, is some version of that. Um, and I just told you one, right? I said, well, one way is when the people who are deciding don't take into don't don't take those costs into account when they're when they're unchecked. And so that's one of the main ways that the piece breaks down. And the book is sort of about how there's five five ways. And one of them is is this much more is this, it's this agency problem, this unchecked leader problem. Then there's two sort of psychological problems. One is when we either there's there's ideological or intangible things that we stand to gain from war that we can't get through compromise. So we we fight because it's valuable in and of itself. The other is when we make mistakes, when we have all the systematic misperceptions we have, and and there are many. Um, and then the other two uh, do also come from game theory or the science strategy. And they say war comes out of either uncertainty or war comes out of basically the strategic unreliability of our opponent. And certain circumstances, nothing necessarily about our opponent, but certain circumstances like sudden anticipated changes in power that, that can come about. And so the book's sort of saying like, look, almost every, you've heard a million, you know, there's a war, uh, sorry, there's a reason for every war and a war for every reason. And actually, most of those reasons um, fit into one of these five categories. How much of these conditions or factors are typically accounted for by political actors in a conscious way versus a more subconscious way? That is to say, do you think people are cognizant of the fact that they may be motivated by pride or honor or whatever? Or do they tend to self-rationalize those factors away in favor of more concrete or defensible explanations for war and conflict? Great question. So I think the so the answer for individuals and individuals deciding whether or not to engage in conflict, I think we're very often acting in the moment in a hot reactive way. This is not actually not a book about individual conflict. Most books about violence are about about our our instinctual and other psychological issues as as individuals. But once you're in groups, it's one thing to explain a skirmish or a border invasion or a clash with me being ignorant of my or my entire administration being prideful and ignorant of our pride it's another thing to explain year six of that conflict right with this stubborn ignorance so so we have to be really careful that's why i i think we have to sort of be a little bit cautious and suspicious of these psychological stories because you know a lot of short wars or a lot of clashes might be due to these sort of errors but but the average civil war is about 10 years long so maybe we should be maybe we should be look maybe certainly some stubborn misperceptions matter a lot but maybe we should also be looking for other deeper roots that that actually make this you know not the best thing we can do but maybe optimal under the circumstances for two for two enemies to decide to use violence there's been some debate over the years in international relations and political science about about rational choice theory. I recall a friend of mine years ago did a doctoral dissertation about whether dictatorial regimes such as the Taliban or Saddam Hussein's Iraq or the North Korean dictatorship ought to be understood as rational actors. How does that scholarship interact with your own work? Yeah. So, I mean, the the game theoretic parts like, and uh, you know, let me let me take uncertainty as an example is, you know, says, well, like, what if we're rational? Could we still find ourselves at war? That doesn't mean that 
our adversary is rational. It just means to say, like, actually, let's also think about. So let's think about someone like Saddam Hussein, right? And you might say that Saddam Hussein is a madman. You might say that Saddam Hussein is an autocrat and is totally insulated from the truth and has bad information. You might say all sorts of things. But um, the thing is, is, is the thing that's true for Saddam Hussein, that's true for Vladimir Putin, that's true for NATO, that's true for a gang leader here on the streets of Chicago, is that they have lots of enemies. And the fight today with this rival, so if someone's threatening me, I have to not just worry about what my actions, what sort of signal that sends to this one rival in that one moment. But I've got 12 other opponents who are looking on, and they might even be more threatening to me. And so, and I have to worry about sending a signal because it's actually, it's fundamentally uncertain. So this is where uncertainty plays a role. It's fundamentally uncertain how strong I am and how resolved I am. And if I can pull off, if I can bluff with one opponent, then that's going to pay off with all of these other opponents in the future. And if, and if I can, and if I can, and, and of course, if I lose that bluff or if I, or if I actually appear weak because I give in, right? If I, if I let everyone in, if I tell you I don't have weapons of mass destruction, if I make it really crystal clear, then I, 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 I worry actually what that's going to do to my next interaction. And so there's an argument that, you know, Iraq's enemy number one, two, or three was not the United States um, back in 2003. You know, it was, they were thinking about Iran and, and Israel, and, and Saddam Hussein most of all was thinking about his own population and rest of ethnic groups and his generals. And, 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 and so, you know, the United States was enemy number four or five. And so you don't have to believe that that's the only reason for this long con and this long bluff that was only given up at the very last minute, and even then with a lot of uncertainty. But you have to recognize that that was a big part of the story. Um, and you have to recognize that on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the West's resolve was uncertain. And Russia's resolve and, and, and capabilities were uncertain. And each of them were playing a long game with many enemies. And they have strategic incentives to sort of be thinking because nobody nobody's ever fighting with just one rival. And so you don't have to sort of say that maybe that's not primary every time, but to sort of ignore that, which I think we mostly do, to ignore that is just deeply faulty. What about the so-called Starbucks thesis? Is it true that having two Starbucks in two countries correlates with a much lower likelihood of conflict? Well, it's interesting. I've never heard the Starbucks thesis, so uh, but but there's you know the the you can look you can find you can. You, me, me, <laughs> I, I guess I could see a way in which um, one is is where you know maybe maybe Starbucks CEOs are just very good at sort of saying well let's just not go to these risky places uh, so that's that's possible um, and and let's sort of just work in places where where we think there's like a lot of a wealthy population so I think that's probably just very very chance or not sure that's not chance at all it's it's just it's 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 spurious. They're, they're just basically conditioning on all the things that make for stable growing places, which most of us can pick out. And then because that's where they're going to make their money. Um, if anything, it's sort of why most places don't go to war. It sort of helps us point out like, look, like every, a lot of people can make a lot of money if we don't fight. And so there's this huge incentive. Peace has this gravitational pull because then you get not only are you wealthy and you're trading, but then you also get, you know, to pay four dollars for a cup of flavored hot water. As you've alluded a couple of times, Chris, you also compare street gangs and their decision making about turf wars with interstate conflict. What are the similarities and differences? So the differences are pretty obvious, I think, in that a, 
you know, a street gang is going to be a little bit more individualistic. It's going to be a little bit more idiosyncratic than a government. It's going to probably be less deliberative. They're, you know, a group of young men typically. So, so they're probably more subject to biases than, than say, a, an entire military and intelligence apparatus. Uh, but, you know, the, the point is that they have a lot in common and that any, at any group level, like these same five factors come up. So, you know, I've worked a lot on this in West Africa and here in Chicago and in Latin America. And like, here's an example that you hear three stories about violence in American cities, especially cities like Chicago. One story you hear is young men sort of reacting, these hot reactive emotions to something, you know, often to a perceived slight. And that, that's true. Um, and we know that's true because I've run some programs where you help people deal with their hot reactive emotions and and then they're less violent. Uh, they're really less violent. So, so that, that matters. The second story you hear is one of vengeance. Vengeance is this intangible incentive for violence, right? It, you don't get vengeance through compromise. And so vengeance is a reason where you're willing to pay. It's not that you're ignoring the cost of war like you are when you have this hot reactive emotion. You're not making a mistake. You're choosing violence because it's intrinsically rewarding. And so you're willing to pay some cost. And that explains a certain amount of violence. There's, there's whole, you know, they don't call them gangs anymore. They call them mobs and crews and cliques because they're smaller, less organized than, than the gangs of, of yesteryear. But, uh, but a lot of the mobs, you know, they're named after like a, a brother or an uncle or a father or a friend who was killed, right? So the whole existence of this gang is somewhat, it's somehow predicated on the whole idea of vengeance. The story that's also true, maybe more true, but you don't hear as often, goes back to this reputational and uncertainty story. The fact is, is that if someone looks at me sideways or hits on my girlfriend, this perceived slight, like, why do I react to that? Is it because I'm hot, reactive, and making a mistake? Well, maybe. Is it because I'm vengeant and I just want to get, you know, I just want to eke out some sort of satisfaction? Well, maybe. Or maybe what matters is that there's 14 gangs around me, and if I look weak, it's going to be open season. And so I am compelled as a you know, as a gang member or as a gang leader to respond violently and strategically because I need to send a signal that I'm tough because if I do that, then people will leave me alone. And that is the code of the streets. That is like maybe the fundamental driver of a lot of behavior, um, just as it was for the United States and Iraq or the United States or NATO and Russia. Uh, and so I think we overlook that at our peril. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated well with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming 
the comparison got me thinking about forms of conflict that aren't interstate that involve players like Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or, or whatever. How should we understand their motivations relative to the government of a nation state? And what role does religion play in your analysis? So um, what what so what, you get this sort of phenomenon of let's call it very small extremist groups. Uh, and I'm not going to say terrorist groups. I'll say groups that use terror tactics because terror tactics it's just a tactic. It's 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 a weapon of the week. Uh, terror is something you do when you can't really mobilize a conventional war, uh, and and you commit violence not because you care about the target itself, but because you're trying to send a message and create fear. Um, now it's true that many of these, you know, I think a like a large popular revolution um, would maybe be less prone to ideologies and, and religious fervor, not necessarily. We can think of lots of religious wars. That There seems to be that, you know, these small extremist groups sometimes have these extremist religious motivations. So that would be one of these ideological and tangible motives. Um, so that's true. And But if we stop thinking about it there, I think we would mistake why they're using violence. Because there's actually lots of ideological, small ideological groups that don't use violence all the time. Uh, because it's actually not in their interest. Okay, so so we once again would make this mistake of what social science calls selecting on the dependent variable. So what sets these groups apart? Well, it might be their ideology. Um, it could be the unchecknessed of their leaders. So again, this agency problem, the fact that the leaders aren't internalizing the costs. It could be uh, that they, um, you know, they, they, they may have these other strategic incentives, like if they, they sort of fear that the, you know, if they have sort of temporary advantage, they may have, and they fear that going away, there's a way to lock in their advantage. So there's lots of reasons. So I, I think we, there's a whole literature that's sort of looking at the strategic logic of terror groups so that we don't ignore it because it's too easy to see this sort of religious, religious extremism and, and stop thinking there. As part of your research, did you discern any relationship between the propensity for war and conflict and a society's age distribution? Do you think that aging demographics, particularly in advanced economies, reduce the likelihood of war? So people made this claim. I find, I think the evidence is pretty unpersuasive. It's not really clear to me what, what it is. Of, look, I, I could see an argument whereby a very youthful population might be prone to more sporadic, individualized violence. But in terms of like organized civil war, and sustain violence between, you know, powerful rivals, you know, there are really, really strong incentives, both for those young men, mostly, and for the people who are leading them to find some other way. And so at the end of the day, simply having a youthful population doesn't make you more unchecked, simply having a youthful population doesn't necessarily make you more ideological, or more prone to misperceptions, or things less certain, or create these sort of reliability and commitment problems. And so like many, it's for me, it's one of these false causes. As you've mentioned, Chris, you wrote the book before Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. How has the invasion and increasingly protracted conflict affirmed or challenged your thesis? So prior to the war, you know, I'm on record as, as saying, I don't think it's going to happen. I was privy to no special intelligence. I think I merely said that because at the time it was quite transparent as it might happen. But most of the time, your best bet is it's not that it's so unwise and so costly, as we've seen, right? It was just such a, in some ways, it was such a bad move for 
Russia and arguably exposed even for Putin that that it seemed like the wrong choice. Um, and so therefore, most of the time, we shouldn't we should expect leaders to rattle their sabers and then stop. Uh, obviously, I was wrong and I'm, I'm wrong every time a war does break out. Um, so why did it happen? So, you know, ex post rationalization. I mean, one is, again, one we've heard we've heard these. I mean, Putin is a highly unchecked leader. I think I underestimated the extent to which he saw the preservation of his regime as hinging on the subjugation of Ukraine. And I think the argument for that basically is that, look, like, here's, you know, he, he fears probably some kind of democratic revolution just as much as any other autocrat. And right here on his border is a reasonably successful democracy of Russian-speaking peoples that Russians identify with more than anybody else. So while it was never in the interest of Russia to gamble on this war, you can kind of see how it was in the interest of Putin to gamble in order to extinguish this democratic threat because these the Ukrainians had tossed out two Russian-facing dictators in the previous uh, in the previous 20 years. Not for dictators. I would say two Russian-facing presidents in the previous 20 years. Um, and then, then there's all, of course, the ideological and the psychological stories we hear about Putin's misperceptions, which are partly true. Uh, what's certainly true is, seems to be true, is that the classic problem of most autocrats is not like a story of psychological biases and misperceptions, but of institutional ones. Autocrats tend to get bad information because no one wants to sort of speak truth to power, especially if they get punished. And so this is a classic problem of autocracy. So it seems like Putin was getting bad estimates of his probability of winning. But then at the end of the day, again, it goes back to uncertainty. At the end of the day, like it was hugely uncertain. And you go back to a year and a half ago and you think about how uncertain it was like Russia's military power, Ukrainian resolve and resistance, and the Western unity and resolve. And the idea that Russia would get a bad draw on all three, I mean, nobody predicted it. Right? And most people thought that it would be over in a, in a few weeks or a few months and that Russia would emerge uh, if not holding all of Ukraine and holding the capital, at least holding a significant component. So, 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 th and and then who knows if we reran the world in the universe a thousand times, how many and how many of those universes does he capture Kiev in the first month, and how many of those universes does does the Zelensky get on the plane? So we we just we always have to be really really careful about judging what was the right decision beforehand. Not right, but I mean maybe the strategically optimal. Uh, however selfish uh, decision was beforehand to be basing it solely on its result. In light of the outcome, though, there's increasing commentary and debate about what a settlement or resolution looks like. How can your framework, Chris, help to inform those decisions? Sure. So one is just to say that if this were, if this were only about misperceptions and mistakes and not about either ideology or not about like the regime's incentives to capture their, their uncheckedness and their incentives, not about uncertainty like and reputation, this war probably would have been one of the very short ones, right? Because, oh, we were wrong, information was bad, let's, let's pull back. Uh, that didn't happen, and it, it probably didn't happen because of the regime incentives, because of this need for reputation and thinking about other enemies and because of the ideology. So, so then the question is, have any of those things fundamentally changed on either side? And if anything, I think they have gotten worse. So Russia went has become even less checked and more autocratic. Like that, there's much less freedom 
than there was in an already relatively unfree and centralized place two years ago. So the regime's incentives for self-preservation are greater than ever. Uh, the ideologies have arguably been hardened on both sides. So whereas there seems to have been a lot of willingness for compromise on the Ukrainian side before the war and in the early days, I think the ideological intransigence of liberty and independence and things we I admire, many of us admire, but nonetheless, that that is hardened on the Ukrainian side. Um, and the uncertainty is getting resolved, but pretty slowly, right? There's still a lot of uncertainty. Like, what is this counteroffensive going to yield? Uh, what is what is what is Ukraine's strength and resolve? Could they push push Russia back? Is is you know people have wild disagreements on. So it's kind of amazing how that uncertainty persists. So until that uncertainty is resolved, as it probably will be in the next two or three months, hard to say. But after that, I I kind of whatever whatever counteroffensive Ukraine is able to wield and 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 accomplish and 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 things may move not at all or things may move a great deal people really don't know uh once that's over i think a lot of the uncertainty will be resolved um and at that point uh my best prediction is it kind of becomes a frozen conflict where neither side really has a an incentive to have a formal an official peace or treaty but that the fighting will be so costly and and accomplished not so much that I think it'll slow down. That's often what happens in these cases. Uh, and that's a, I wouldn't call that very stable, but I'd call that, you know, it lasts for longer than you'd think. I won't ask for a prediction, Chris, but how does your framework help us think about the possibility of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Yeah. And I, you know, once again, just to stress, this is it makes it sound like my framework. It's more like a way of thinking about everybody's theories and how to make sense of them all. And so it's like it's like how to how to how to tell you about how, how to basically start to organize all of the stories you've heard out there, and um and what the different and how to sort of pay attention to maybe the the things people aren't talking enough about. How very Canadian of you. Yes. Well, that 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 may be true. Okay. So so let's you know what let's walk through this like. The uncheckedness of the of the Chinese leadership is actually, you know, actually, Communist Party is a relatively checked and balanced machine, or has been, and has constrained the power of its leaders, and has and 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 they are so tightly entwined in the economy and tied tied towards economic growth that 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 China is this very institutionalized, constrained dictatorship, and I think that's part of its why it has not been a force for instability in the world. Uh, that is changing under Xi Jinping. And so the fact that power is further centralizing and personalizing under him, th th this is something that Putin attempted 20 years ago and successfully, right? In taking a relatively checked and balanced and quasi-democratic place and then turning into personalized autocracy. So I'm really, the thing that worries me most about China, just as in general, not just with respect to Taiwan, is this personalization of power. That should just keep everybody up at night, especially, you know, the Chinese. And that makes, I think, an invasion of Taiwan potentially more likely because it means Xi Jinping's not internalizing most of the costs uh, or isn't compelled to. And and may, if he ever finds it in his interest to preserve not just China and China's welfare, but his regime and his personalized power, that that is maybe the greatest risk. So in some ways, I would say that. And then I would leave everything else blank for a few spots before I talk about other things that worry me with respect to this framework and 
because it's just so overwhelming for me. Um, the 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 other thing I think we have to think about besides people talk a lot about the ideology, but not just of Xi Jinping and and his and his elite, but of the whole populace. I mean, to some extent, of this this ideological intransigence between Taiwan and China about what is an appropriate division of this you know sovereignty um, is is worrisome, right? And it's not getting any better. Uh, the thing that would precipitate a conflict, you know, the thing we should be aware of, and I think the United States and its allies should be very wary of, is anything that makes China think, oh, it makes sense to invade now before we lose the advantage we have. That's this classic, what, you know, I lay out in the book is a classic kind of commitment problem. Anything that says, oh, any anticipated sudden rapid change in the status quo would potentially precipitate an invasion. And so a lot of people say, well, why is the United States pursue this policy of strategic ambiguity towards China? Um, uncertainty is bad. We just talked about why uncertainty leads to war. Surely ambiguity, wouldn't you want to be certain? Wouldn't you want China to know that the United States has Taiwan's back? And I think the answer to that is strategic ambiguity is not aimed at the Chinese. Strategic ambiguity is aimed at Taiwan. It's to keep Taiwan, it's to keep some president or political movement in Taiwan that decides to suddenly change the status quo and declare independence, guessing about whether or not the United States would have its back. I think it's to say that there are circumstances in which we will not, if you're too provocative, we're not going to have your back. And I, I think a lot of people would say that is the purpose of strategic ambiguity. It's to avoid precipitating and giving China an incentive to invade while it can. That's uh, a fascinating answer. Final question, Chris. You call war a, quote, wicked problem. I should say that the Hub, incidentally, has launched a public policy prize called the Hunter Prize to tackle wicked problems. The inaugural prize this year is focused on healthcare reform, but maybe we ought to target war in the future. Why is war a wicked problem? And more importantly, based on your research, how can we avoid them? Yeah, so this is this is something that le leapt out at me when I, you know, I started teaching a few years ago uh, a class called How to Save the World which is about why so many public policy programs are so hard and why things go wrong, but also why some actually, you know, some, there's some real victories too, you know, eliminating smallpox or almost eliminating measles or, or uh, cash transfers to millions of people. Like, there's lots of simple solutions. And so, <clears throat> and I think what I learned teaching that course and reading all these thinkers was that actually we need to learn to diagnose that, you know, there are some problems are super complex and there are many players and there's no playbook. And, and uh, you, you often don't know what the diagnosis is and it's really locally subjective and you've got to come and logistically complex and others are the opposite. Others are actually relatively straightforward. They don't have all those issues. And so it's these wicked problems uh, that have all these complexities and other issues. And there are some, kinds of violence that are not wicked. I think the issue of the fact that a lot of young men are um, are impulsive and 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 short-sighted and prone to emotion and and combine that with the easy availability of guns and you get a lot of shootings. Well, I think it turns out there's some very simple solutions. You can provide certain types of early and late, early childhood and late adulthood interventions that addresses that, and you can reduce a lot of violence. So that's, they're not all violence is wicked, but the, 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 simple, the simple solutions kind of end there. 
And so we need this complex framework of like five different factors and we need to analyze every single conflict carefully and we need to pay attention precisely because every conflict is its own complex animal and we don't know what the diagnosis is and therefore we don't know what the right intervention is. And, and, and we'll actually never really have a proper diagnosis and you'll never really get there. And you kind of have to accept that. We don't know how to solve this problem with Russia and Ukraine. It's almost unsolvable. The best we can do is have a less bad diagnosis and have less bad interventions over time and, and have some realistic expectations and not subscribe to any simplistic narratives. So that's maybe what it comes down to is recognize that your first enemy in any of these things is, is avoid succumbing to simplistic narratives about peace building. Because if you do, it's almost certainly going to lead you astray. Well, that's a key message in an important book. It's called Why We Fight. The Roots of War and the Path to Peace. Christopher Blattman, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.